Tonight, Peter W. Merlin. Peter is an aerospace historian who has been researching the history of Area 51 since 1984 and has written numerous articles on the subject. He has also appeared on such television programs as Modern Marvels, Inside Area 51, Return to Area 51, Atomic Journeys, UFO Hunters, Mystery Quest, and others. Merlin is a member of the Flight Test Historical Foundation, Nevada Test Site Historical Foundation, National Atomic Museum Foundation, Nevada Aerospace Hall of Fame, and is an associate member of Roadrunners International, who are preserving the history of the aviation pioneers and programs that developed the U-2, A-12, and YF-12 during the Cold War. Hey everybody, it's Cam Brower. Thanks for listening. I want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast. It takes just a minute and makes a world of difference. And please hit those like buttons and also leave a comment. You do that and it makes it so much easier for others to find my alien life. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. try not to do lengthy bios on the podcast because we only have a short or limited amount of time. But my guest tonight has written about and experienced some of the most fascinating events in U.S. science and aerospace history. Peter Merlin is the author of the book Nevada Test Site, and that gives us a look into the history of this incredibly expensive piece of Nevada real estate. Peter Merlin, thank you for joining me tonight. Glad to be here. Hey, I knew you from your appearances on TV, and I'm not sure how long ago that was. Um, what was your first appearance on TV that, that I would have remembered? I mean, I've been around a long time, but um, it seems like it was long ago. Well, I've been doing uh, documentary shows, boy, since 1996. I think the first one was probably Inside Area 51. And uh, I've done quite a bit of stuff for the History Channel, Discovery, National Geographic, Travel Channel, things like that. I have your book, The Nevada's Test Site, and I'm totally fascinated by it. There's something about government testing of that magnitude that makes me want more 
it's an unusual place, and um, unfortunately, probably none of us will ever get to explore it. Well, it is a very unusual place, and I'm happy to say I've been able to explore quite a bit of it uh, a great many times over the years, and had the opportunity to uh, visit the various test areas and take pictures and explore some of the remnants of the atomic testing era uh, from the above ground and even the below ground testing stuff. It's uh, it's quite a place. So for those of us who don't know anything about it, what exactly is the Nevada test site? How long has it been there and what's the, a little bit of the history? Well, what it comes down to is, uh, you know, as most people probably know, atomic weapons were developed during World War II, uh, which is also, thankfully, so far the only time they were used in combat. But after the war, uh, the U.S. government was engaged in testing to develop better and more powerful weapons. And so, uh, originally, they started out doing testing on coral atolls in the Pacific, but the logistics of getting all the people and equipment out there was it was very expensive. There were a lot of issues involving uh, weather and things like that. So it was decided to uh, open up a continental nuclear test site. A lot of areas were studied, uh, including, uh, surprisingly, some East Coast sites, but eventually a more logical choice in the remote Nevada desert was selected, uh, part of the uh, Air Force bombing and gunnery ranges north of Las Vegas. And so part of that was set aside as a very large reservation uh, to do first above ground and later uh, subterranean uh, atomic weapons testing. It covers a substantial portion of, of Nye County. It's, it's part of a very large uh, government reservation that includes the what's now the Nevada Test and Training Range, where they do uh, aerial uh, combat simulation and air-to-ground gunnery and bombing. And part of that up in the corner is the Tonopah Test Range, which uh, has been used for nuclear weapons shape testing as well as uh, aircraft testing. And, of course, most in infamously, in the center of this whole mess, uh, just adjacent to the Nevada test site, uh, is Area 51, which uh, many people, for some reason, think of in terms of flying saucers. But it's really a secret government test site for aircraft and weapons systems. So really, when you think about it, the whole area really isn't that secret. I mean, it's been there a long, long time. I think, um, you know, only in recent history has it um, become more of a prominent place because of Area 51. Why didn't we think of it as much, say, between 1950 and 1970? Well, actually... Uh it, it did get quite a bit of press coverage during the above-ground testing because when you drop a, a nuclear weapon or blast one off the top of a 500-foot tower, you know that lit up the sky. And they tended to do this in the early pre-dawn hours. So people as far away as Los Angeles were seeing this bright flash glow in the sky. And, of course, uh, closer to the, the test site was Las Vegas, where... The explosions uh, caused the casino towers to rock, and you know it was it was quite a uh, quite a show. Not uh, not to mention the bad news for the people who were downwind of the above ground testing, and that's where all the fallout went. 
So, right, it's only 65 miles from Las Vegas. Did the government feel that that was a safe distance back then? Because, I mean, obviously they knew the impact of a... Of, of shockwaves, and they knew uh, they knew that we had uh, winds in the United States that usually went from the west to the east. So, um, why so close to Las Vegas? Well, uh, the the land was available because it was already under military and government control. So that was a big part of it, and it was a very sparsely populated area. There was hardly anybody living in the vicinity. And that was also true uh, downwind, where you know there were a few sheep camps and uh, silver mines and things like that. And so they, they figured that if the testing was done at such time that the winds were blowing uh, primarily to the northeast, it would put the fallout over the least populated areas. Good news for people in Las Vegas and Los Angeles, not so good news for the people in uh, northern Nevada and and uh, Utah, where you know, they got big clouds of fallout. And in fact, if you look at some of the studies, uh, the fallout eventually uh, found its way all across the country, uh, all the way east, back to the east coast. And in some cases, that showed up as uh, a fallout in the water you know, that was used in the Kodak paper plant for photography. And you'd get these uh, batches of, of photo paper with all kinds of spots on them from this, <laughs> this material. So what was the first test and, and what did they expect? Because, I mean, they had to know there would be follow-up. They knew, uh, I guess it was St. George, Utah. They they uh, are probably the biggest town to the east. Is that not true? It is true. St. George took the brunt of it for a while there in the early 1950s uh, when some of that testing was particularly dirty. If the weapon was set off on a top of a steel tower, Parts of that tower were vaporized and sucked up into the cloud and dispersed uh, for long distances, which is why the uh, towers were eventually abandoned in favor of balloons, because then you didn't have uh, this extra material getting sucked up into the cloud. And uh, a little later on, you know, in the early 60s, all of the testing was moved underground to contain as much of that nuclear material as possible. You still had occasional instances of venting where the, the, the radioactive material would burst through the, the surface through some fissure and, and get out, but it didn't go as far as it had uh, during the atmospheric testing. So how many nuclear devices did they test at the site? Uh, it was more than 900, because there have been uh, over 1,000 uh, U.S. nuclear tests. And uh, in the early 50s, the, the weapons designs were... were you know, what they referred to as dirty. They were not not particularly efficient weapons uh, as far as using up all of their fissionable material. So the scientists at Los Alamos and Livermore uh, were working to develop what they called cleaner weapons that would hopefully have uh, less fission products get away. And, of course, they were also aiming to have more and more powerful weapons. Now, that said, the most powerful weapons we ever developed were, in fact, tested in the Pacific, the, uh, the big, you know, 5, 10 megaton hydrogen bombs. Uh, there was, uh, it was essentially a gentleman's agreement not to test those on U.S. soil, although there were a few fusion weapons that were uh, detonated at the Nevada test site. What was the biggest weapon that they tested in Nevada? 
I believe that was shot hood, which I think was 74 kilotons. Um, as far as atmospheric testing, there was, you know, there were upwards of one megaton shots underground, uh, but those were fully contained. And there was, for a while, talk of opening up a second test site in Nevada, which would have been the central Nevada test area in the Hot Creek Valley. And there was one shot fired off there. It was about one megaton uh, shot more than 3,000 feet underground. And that was to determine whether or not that geological landscape could contain higher yield tests up to five megatons, which they determined from that that it could not. And so the higher yield test was moved to Amchitka Island, Alaska. Was there anything special about the geology of that area of the uh, Nevada test site that made it ideal for uh, nuclear testing? Uh, it's, it's primarily in a, a deep valley filled with sediment that had accrued over millions of years. And uh, there's a lot of volcanic rock. And so they were able to drill down uh, through, through the soil and below the water table into this volcanic structure. And one of the biggest challenges then was to, um, to backfill those holes. They called it stemming, to stem the holes, using all kinds of different uh, things from sand and gravel to fast-closing steel doors uh, to you know, concrete plugs, all of which was designed to, to keep that in. It, it didn't always work, but uh, it was a heck of a lot better than blowing it up on the surface. So how many tests were above ground and how many do you think there were underground and how many tests did they carry out that were kind of so sketchy that that even they didn't have enough information to uh, determine what to expect? Well, I think some as far as some of the ones where they, they might not have known exactly what to expect, uh, there were some tests that were done in unstemmed holes. They just left the top of the hole open, in which you, in case you got sort of a Roman candle effect. I'm not entirely sure why that was advantageous to test. Um, there was also a series of, of tests involving peaceful uses for nuclear explosives, and this was highly controversial. The idea of using nuclear explosive devices to, say, dredge a new harbor or a second Panama Canal or you know things of that nature. And so these were... Uh, these concepts were tested, you know, digging ditches and blasting out the largest possible crater. But the uh, one of the problems was, of course, you, you still had all that radioactive fallout nearby. And that was a real problem. Like if you were going to, you know, they wanted to build a freeway uh, pass through the Cadiz Mountains in the eastern Mojave, which would have taken as many as 40 nuclear devices. But you know, I think someone must have decided that that would have made that, that highway awfully radioactive. Some other tests were done in uh, New Mexico and Colorado to use nuclear explosives to get to uh, deep reservoirs of natural gas, fracturing the rock, where normally you would drill down and use uh, conventional explosives. And again, the uh, explosive power of the nuclear device was very useful but the product you got was not commercially viable because the gas that came out of there was radioactive. So is it even possible to carry out a nuclear explosion to, for some sort of large excavation through a mountain um, without having it become radioactive? 
I got to tell you, it really doesn't seem to be. Uh, there, there doesn't <laughs> seem to be a, a clean way of doing it. Yeah. So it was, you, with a, it was kind of an artifact of the, that early atomic era where a lot of scientists saw this as a, you know, a new tool for the future, but it just had a lot of, uh, a lot of elements that made it too dangerous to use. So I know you've done a lot of research in this. Have you ever read a paper or anything that would have, that would have made you even think that somebody back then <laughs> had, had evidence that they could carry out something like this without some sort of widespread contamination? Not really. I mean, to my mind, it seems like common sense that you'd look at that idea and say, now look, there's a problem I can see right from the get-go. <laughs> right. And, and the, other, the one thing that, that I had read, they were, they were looking into that, of course, and you mentioned that, but, you know, a large-scale um, um, water storage and things like that, you know, in places that, that, that equipment wasn't accessible. So <laughs> water and radiation, I mean, I've always known did not um, work well together. During these um, experiments, I know that they did a lot of construction. They built towns. They they planned out scenarios for testing the results of nuclear war on the populations. Um, what, what, what did that look like, and what kind of scale of uh, construction did they have going on, and, and who put this, who built it, who put this thing together? Back in the 50s, we had a whole program for civil uh, defense, and so there, there was a government agency responsible for developing scenarios uh, and contingencies for you know, having the populace survive a nuclear attack from, say, Russia. So uh, they did build, uh, you know, houses and you know partial towns and you know the sort of materials that you would typically find in any uh, normal American city. Uh, they tested a number of different bomb shelter concepts of various thicknesses of concrete, different shapes and sizes, uh, putting, you know, food into the, the, the shelter to see if it would become radioactive. Uh, I got to wander around some of these remaining artifacts on Frenchman Flat and Yucca Flat. And, you know, a lot of those concrete domes were reinforced with steel and, you know, they'd still get flattened by the nuclear blast. Not all of them, the thicker ones survive, but then, you know, they, they'd heat up so much that it might not be survivable. And uh, there were some civil defense exercises that involved volunteers who came out and observed uh, nuclear tests. And there were a great many military exercises involving thousands of soldiers from all the branches of service, some of whom were stationed in trenches as close as a quarter mile to ground zero. So they were right there when the blast went off. And uh, after the explosion, you know, you'd have some uh, commanding officer order them up and you know, to march toward the ground zero area where they would you know, perform uh, military maneuvers and also observe uh, military equipment that had been placed out in the blast zone, such as trucks and tanks and uh, machine gun emplacements and things like that. Uh, the idea was to expose these soldiers to a, a real-world nuclear environment to see how they would react. You know, would they be able to continue fighting or would they panic? Uh, so there was a psychological element as well as the physical element of you know, determining their exposure to radiation, things like that. So I had a question that uh, 
I basically was going to ask you, um, I knew that there was witnesses there. I knew that there were soldiers there, but I knew that also they must have been because of the, uh, the actual size of, of the valley within 30 miles, but you're saying less than a mile. Oh yeah. Uh, some of the, the closest trenches were you know, within a quarter mile from the, the blast. It's, it seems crazy, but uh, they did it and lived lived to tell the tale. Any idea the size of the uh, detonation that that we'd be talking for for that kind of scale with uh, soldiers so close in proximity? Oh, they varied from relatively small blasts up to what they considered nominal at the time, which was around twenty kilotons. Um, you know, that was essentially with, within a range of the weapons that were used during World War II. Uh, there were uh, observers from the news media as well. Uh, in fact, there was a place set aside near the control point, uh, a little hill they called News Knob, and also foreign uh, military uh, uh, VIPs and other dignitaries were invited to watch some of the blasts. It's kind of eerie to see the pictures of these people you know, essentially sitting on bleachers with their dark goggles <laughs> watching these things like it's some kind of uh, outdoor show. So, right, most of their skin would have had to been covered. In, and even if it was covered, I mean, there was a lot of danger of um, initial exposure of the uh, the blast. And I got to imagine the shockwave, even if you're in a trench six feet underground, must have been dramatic and traumatic. I should think so. If you get a chance to visit the uh, National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, they have a uh, theater that's built kind of like a bunker, and you know they sort of simulate what it would be like to observe a, a nuclear blast, including that that shockwave. So it, it is. Uh, I, I imagine it can't be quite like the real thing, but it's as close as they could get it, which was quite exciting. At that time, you know, it seems like that we were producing a lot of weapons um, as, as a government and as, a, as a, a nation. How did the U.S. procure money and how were they able to produce so many weapons in such a short time just for testing? Well, this was the Cold War era. Uh, I maybe should call it the first Cold War since we seem to be in the second one now. And we were essentially... Um, racing against the, the Soviets, the Russians. Uh, when we developed our very first atomic bombs, they had spies in our program and were working on their very first atomic weapons, which came shortly after World War II. And then uh, they were trying to build bigger and better bombs, just as we were, and they had a civil defense program that was uh, probably even more effective than ours. And they even had the same peaceful uses for nuclear explosives type program, except that they... Uh, they used it, and you know, we tested it and then gave up on it, and they, they used theirs. So, um, you know, you, you had these two superpowers that were essentially, you know, each seeing the other as a threat, and so this spurred the government to spend as much money and manpower as possible to develop these things. So during this time of, of, of testing, and, and there had to been a period that overlapped with uh, use of, of Area 51 just to the east. That's got to be within 10 miles, right? 
Yeah, Area 51 is right next door to the Nevada test site. In fact, it was uh, the site was selected because of its proximity. The CIA needed a place to test the U-2 spy plane in uh, the mid-50s. And Kelly Johnson of Lockheed uh, was looking for a site, and he didn't like that site particularly because it was farther from his factory in Burbank than he would have liked, and it was also right next door to the atomic testing but it already was within the uh, government range area, the restricted airspace protections, the resources of the Nevada test site in terms of security uh, guards and things like that. So it was a pretty ideal place, also being very, very remote and a good spot to do secret things. But the period right before uh, Area 51 was, was chosen, which was in uh, spring of 1955, and then after the U-2 program moved out in the summer of 57, uh, before and after, those times were really, really heavy usage, a lot of above-ground nuclear testing. So there's a lot of activity in a whole area. I don't, you know, if you, if you pinpointed the center of the Nevada test site and you went east, west, north, or south, um, there's gravel pits, there's buildings, there's um, other testing ranges, there's, there's runways. Um, Shouldn't that whole area, including Area 51, be radioactive? Actually, I'm glad you asked that, because I know before I ever visited the Nevada test site, I expected that place to be this radioactive, post-apocalyptic wasteland. And I was very surprised uh, that it did not meet my expectations. There are craters, and uh, when you're in the middle of Yucca Flat particularly, there's lots of subsidence craters from the underground nuclear testing. And the above-ground test areas have structures that have been blasted down and melted. And I was allowed to bring a Geiger counter, and you know, not, a, not just one you know, like you would get from your ordinary civil defense thing. I mean, this is a high-quality uh, surface meter that measured alpha, beta, and gamma particles. And I was surprised first at uh, the fact that most of the Nevada test site is really quite a nice, nice area. It's you know pretty pleasant, like most parts of uh, you know central Nevada. And the radiation levels were virtually non-existent, even at most of the ground zero sites that we visited, the above ground testing areas on, say, Frenchman Flat, for example. The only place that I detected any kind of radiation was on the, uh, the rim of Sedan Crater, which is the largest crater at the site. Uh, it was, was one of the uh, peaceful uses, you know, Project Plowshare sites. Uh, and you had to get away from the public viewing platform they built to, on the edge of there and you know, actually out onto the rim of the crater to detect anything. And it was very low level. It was much lower than, say, Trinity site at White Sands Missile Range, where the first atomic test was done in New Mexico. There is another spot on the test site where uh, it's more radioactive because they, they did a tower shot and a lot of the radioactive metal and melted sand, you know, which is much like the Trinitite you'd find at Trinity site, is still there. But... Uh, uh, again, I was just really surprised at how little radiation I was detecting. Why would that be? Well, I'm guessing a lot of it just has to do with uh, you know, with, with time and you know, the, the fact that you know 
a lot of the test materials, the, the belted tower debris has been cleared away. The, the balloon shots didn't have so much in terms of uh, any kind of residual radiation at ground level. You know, but even you know, even up places like Frenchman Flat by those uh, those you know, fallout shelters and things, those I, I didn't detect any any exceeding levels beyond background radiation. I've heard that downwind city summit, which is on Highway 375 north of the town of Rachel, there is a higher uh, radiation level than you would detect in much of the surrounding area because that was directly in the dip out and still apparently has some uh, some remnants of that. Also, there's an area known as Plutonium Valley, where several shots took place, not to create a nuclear detonation, but safety experiments to see what would happen to a nuclear warhead if only, say, one or two of the detonators went off and uh, spread plutonium all over the place. I was asked if I wanted to uh, visit that site to go in there wearing a protective suit with positive internal pressure and i said no yeah i wouldn't think that uh you know even i don't care how much you prepared in advance it, it would be um putting your own life at risk or even potentially in the future um in about 1982 so there was the movie the day after and i think everybody had watched it back then and we were all really fascinated by it it described a, a real brutal um, nuclear apocalypse. Now that was a, a large scale with uh, with the Soviets um, bombing us and we bombing them. But basically, it gave you the impression or the the idea that the Earth would be radioactive for for tens of thousands of years. Is do you feel that's true or is it was that overplayed? Um, that might have been overplayed to some degree. It depends, of course, on the size of the nuclear exchange. If it's a limited exchange with a few bombs or missiles, then, you know, that certainly would be overplayed. If it's an all-out global thermonuclear war, then you're, you're talking about a much bigger problem because now you're probably going to have so much debris in the air that you'll get what they call a nuclear winter. And, you know, radiation would definitely be a problem because, uh, the stuff would be spread throughout the atmosphere and it would come back down with the rain. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty grim prospect that I hope we never see. What's the difference between the bombs that basically, or the, the devices that were detonated in the Nevada test site and the, the, uh, the detonations that we would have in a, a thermonuclear attack over Russia or over the United States well, that's an interesting question because we've sort of moved on from the, the early early philosophy of designing bombs was to make them as powerful as possible. And so you have these things that would have been effectively city busters. You know, the idea that you would have a bomb with a you know, 10 megaton yield, 15 megaton, 20. Uh, the Russians designed one that theoretically could have had a 100 megaton yield. And they tested it. Uh, but the scientists were afraid to let it go the, the full power, so they basically, you know, damped it down to essentially, a, I think it was 58 megatons, which uh, seems like overkill. <laughs> it's, it's more than you really need. You know, fireball physics pretty much limits the size of your, your blast area, so at that point, you're just wasting material. And nowadays, 
the new weapons are designed to be uh, lighter, smaller. Uh, there's a thing called dial a yield where you can select you know, how much of a nuclear explosion you get, whether it's you know, small or relatively large, but still not the size of the city busters. And you know, we're primarily looking at the idea of using this in a more tactical situation, bunker busting, you know, having a, a penetrating warhead that could destroy a deep underground target. And the only place where you kind of get away from that, of course, are the ballistic missiles, like the ones launched out of silos in the ground or from submarines. And those are probably a little bit closer to you know, what you typically think of in terms of nuclear war, if, if you're going to take out a lot of military targets all at once. Where were these weapons produced and how did they get to the test range? Well, there are two primary labs, Los Alamos in New Mexico, Livermore in California. Two different teams of scientists working their own kind of philosophy as far as design. Uh, they were then, you know, flown by plane or uh, trucked or otherwise moved to the Nevada test site. In the in the early days, a lot of that uh, drop testing, they used airplanes based at Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico, and uh, you know, then later it was mainly a matter of just flying in the warheads and putting them down these these holes that were often you know thousands of feet deep. So what was the procedure for detonation day? Um, and did the general public know, or was this something that was kept secret? And uh, we were in Las Vegas and we just looked to the north and we suddenly saw this big uh, mushroom cloud. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. There there were tests that were announced in advance and. Uh, Back in the 1950s, uh, that certainly was, you know, a popular time to go to Las Vegas, and they, there were there were blast parties where people would go up to the top of the casinos to, in the early morning and watch these things go off. But there were also a great many tests that were not announced, and in fact, uh, many of those remained uh, un, uh, unannounced and unconfirmed for quite a few years or even decades afterward. I think they've pretty much all been declassified at this point. In some cases, with the underground testing, they would fire off two or more uh, warheads simultaneously to, uh, you know, to get basically two for the price of one in terms of testing. And if people felt the, the shaking in Vegas, well, they just figured it was one test. They didn't know it was more than one. So they did have human test subjects. Now, did they intentionally expose people they certainly did. There were people, uh, I can think of some Air Force volunteers, who flew through the radioactive clouds after the blast. Uh, they would sometimes swallow a, uh, like a little kind of film badge with a long string coming out of their, their throat and mouth so you'd pull it back out afterward. And that would determine how much radiation their body uh, was exposed to as they flew through the cloud. I know that they um, also tested animals, but one thing in particular I wanted to know about was, didn't they maintain several farms in that area where these um, they had dairy farms and these animals went through several tests? That's true. There was a whole herd of cattle at the dairy farm, and that gave them some some information about what, what would happen to animals that grazed on, on land that had been irradiated. Uh, the other animal tests involved... You know, various things like pigs that were exposed to the, the blast and dogs that were uh, exposed to these things. It's kind of gruesome now, but uh, 
they were they were testing to see what what effect the radiation uh, had on on live tissue. There was one one of those safety t- experiments I mentioned where where it spread plutonium. It's called Project Fifty Seven. That was done just five miles north of Area Fifty One, um, and at a time when you know, the, the base had been essentially temporarily closed. But that area uh, north of the base, there north of Groom Lake, is still contaminated with plutonium in the soil, despite the uh, efforts to clean it up. It was never completely cleaned up. So it's just a a fenced-off, posted area that's occasionally monitored. Now, I know at Area 51, um, in particular, they do a lot of construction, and it's ongoing, and um, they have new buildings, and they have new they have new facilities and all kinds of things there. So um, is it a, d- a danger, or do you know if it's a danger for, for them to excavate in areas like that that have been um, exposed to uh, a radioactive element from a nuclear device? Well, it, it certainly would be, and uh, fortunately none of that construction is taking place within the uh, alpha-contaminated zone. Still, you know, it's the desert, and you get some pretty high winds, and you have to wonder if some of that material will be resuspended by the wind and gone over to the base. Uh, I don't know if it's still operational, but there used to be uh, atmospheric radiation monitors at the base to detect stuff like that. And I know, uh, you know, when that was being checked, there were times when they detected small amounts of radioactive material. So, yeah, technically there, there is a danger. Uh, it's probably relatively minor, but it's there. And just to the uh, west of, of the site, there's a, a really, really large scale operation of um, a gravel crushing and, and uh, operation. I'm not sure if that's used locally within the Nevada test site in Area 51 or if that material is carried outside of the uh, area. But um, do you know anything about that and, and what they would yeah, that's just need such for a large scale? Use. Yeah, that's basically for local use. It's been used for building new runways and taxiways and things like that, just a uh, source of gravel and concrete. Because that seems like it should be a, a, a factor, you know, when, when, <laughs> when digging into the earth, especially when they've had nuclear devices underground so incredibly close. And it is surprising that there's so much that goes on there. There's even um, a, uh, a runway just south of that, which is within a mile. What about reports of uh, cancer risks and levels in, in areas to the uh, closer areas like uh, Rachel, Nevada, and places like that? I know it's less populated, but... Um, any studies go on? I know that uh, St. George, Utah, they had reported um, higher levels of uh, thyroid and lymphoma and things like that. But but what have you heard? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true. That whole downwind area uh, had significant cancer clusters, and it was also uh, an area where they did sheep sheep herding, and the the sheep grazed on the contaminated grasses, and of course, uh, many of them died and uh, were. were you know, subjected to mutations and things like that. There were some pretty significant lawsuits brought, and the government fought that pretty hard. When was but, the last? Uh, when was the last nuclear test that they had? Well, the last last uh, of the tests was done in the early 1990s, and then the site was essentially mothballed with the idea that it could theoretically be brought back online if. Uh, if whatever current administration wanted to continue nu- nuclear weapon testing. 
but it wasn't completely shut down. Uh, there were subcritical tests that have been done in underground uh, test areas there. That's where you use uh, some fissionable material, but you don't have a nuclear blast. There have been tests involving conventional high explosives. Uh, they've devoted part of Frenchman Flat to uh, chemical spill testing, learning how to clean up uh, toxic chemicals. Uh, there's a lot of other different, you know, areas to that lab. It's now, it's no longer called the Nevada Test Site. It's now called the Nevada uh, National Security Site, which uh, I guess is to, you know, kind of showcase that, you know, there's a lot of other aspects to it. There was a whole period of time when they were doing testing to develop rocket engines, nuclear-powered rocket engines for space vehicles, although that that was eventually canceled. Part of this area that I find so fascinating is 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 totally visual, and yeah, you can study uh, effects of nuclear radiation and, and so many other aspects. If you go onto Google Maps, you can get such an aerial view of, uh, of, this, of this place, and it's so amazing. Some of the things I couldn't explain, you know, what I was actually seeing on Google Maps, and one of them was um, a crater, and um, you see this many times throughout the site, but um, it almost looks like a, um, a black streamers or something are coming out of the, of the test pit. And I noticed on your, uh, in your book on the photos that uh, they're actually cables and um, that are, are coiled up. And to me, it looks like remnants of the original tests are still at many of these sites. That is true. And, uh, yeah, the cables were used for a variety of things from actually setting off the device to collecting scientific data because there were always um, uh, instrumentation canisters that went down the hole along with the explosive. And, of course, you know, you think of a, a nuclear blast and how quickly things happen. So this scientific data had to be collected within you know, just minuscule fractions of a second, just very, very quickly. So when they're collecting this data, and it's, you know, it's not like today. We, they didn't have Bluetooth. So you had to have <coughs> members of the science community in close proximity. Um, how close were these guys, in, and what kind of protective device were they in when they're, when they're studying this reaction? Well, all of the, all of the information was collected uh, through the telemetry systems, and it was essentially you know, transmitted to the control point you didn't have to have people at the the site itself. You know, when you when you look at a picture of a test site prior to detonation, you'll see all these trailers and things, and those are full of equipment and uh, scientific gear and whatnot. But then the people leave that; they leave the immediate area prior to the site uh, to the blast, and you know, go back uh, uh, to the the rear areas. But then afterward, you would send in teams to investigate uh, the ground zero or surface ground zero. And so uh, typically they would wear protective uh, clothing and respirators and whatnot. And uh, if it was an underground shot, then it was necessary to drill down into the, uh, uh, into the chamber sometimes to take samples of radioactive gases. Or in the case of the tunnel shots, which were done uh, inside the mesa, you know, they'd have to re-enter the tunnel and go in, collect information from there. You know, originally, before I read your book, I had the idea that 
you know, they would drill a hole and drop this bomb down there. And, and to me, it looks like that's not the case because I'm looking at photographs of um, actual, I mean, huge rooms um, underground. And you're saying in here that, that somewhere 20,000 linear feet and um, there could have been the possibility of, of 50 miles worth of underground tunnels there. Yeah, the uh, if you look on on Google, you'll see a couple of large mesas off uh, on the edge of Yucca Flat, uh, Paiute Mesa, Rainier Mesa, and thousands of feet of tunnels were drilled uh, horizontally into these areas, and so you'd have branches coming off, uh, say, a main tunnel, and they go to the different work areas. The device would be put in, you know, sort of like a little uh, dog leg or hook at the end of the tunnel. Which is part of partly done so it would, would close off when the blast went off. But um, you'd have this whole area where the rock essentially just vaporized around the exploding weapon. And in other cases, there were large chambers bored out and the weapon put within that. And science, in some cases, that was done you know, to see how it would appear seismically if you had. Uh, a larger chamber rather than just having the the explosive within the rock itself. I know that when we think about this site, there were, uh, there were scientists present, there was military. They would have had to have a huge full-scale mining operation with miners happening at that site in, in many different places at once. That's absolutely correct. It was, um, it was a real boon for the, uh, the mining industry because a lot of these guys... You know, who might not have been able to get employment at, say, a gold or silver mine would be able to go to the test site and dig those tunnels. One of the photos that you have is is amazing because because it describes a a shot that was in 1972. It's a it's a huge structure underground where they had a uh, a tapered horizontal line of of pipe that was sometimes 27 foot in diameter and right. uh, connected to a vacuum chamber. What exactly was that? Oh, well, in some of those cases, uh, the military wanted to see what would happen to uh, various equipment, like, say, satellite equipment or a warhead uh, in space being affected by radiation from a blast. So, you know, you could have an experiment where you take, say, a missile warhead and put it in a, a vacuum chamber that simulates the environment of space and then have another you know, warhead detonated near it, and you collect information to see, you know, how how the other one is affected. And there was um, there was an experiment where a, a you know a satellite, actual space hardware, was put in a chamber on top of uh, uh, one of those vertical holes and exposed to radiation from the blast. And there were cables to yank that chamber away really quick, so that. Uh, you know, it would the, the little chamber would would close up, and the scientists would be able to take the satellite and find out what uh, what effects radiation had. When there's an air detonation, usually there there's a, a stronger shock wave than closer to uh, to the surface. De- depending on where, I mean, they they tested every possible mode of employment. You know, uh, surface burst, subsurface burst, above ground. You know, low altitude, above ground, high altitude. Uh, there were even some warheads detonated in space above Johnson Island in the uh, in the Pacific, and uh, it was part of the military effects program 
to essentially just learn the characteristics of nuclear weapons and you know figure out from that you know, how they could be employed and how you could defend against them if the enemy was using them. I know there's a tour that runs out of uh, of Las Vegas, Nevada. Where does that originate, and how does one find out? Because um, yeah, that's something I think I'd like to do. Yeah, there there absolutely is a tour, and I think that it's arranged through the National Atomic Testing Museum, which has a website. Um, I, I don't know how often they do that. It's you know probably at least a few times a year. Definitely worth taking. Uh, I'm sorry to say that they, you know, on the public tours they don't allow cameras or uh, Geiger counters or things like that. But still, it's a really neat tour. You get to see a lot of these places that are, you know, uh, historic from the Cold War era. You know, get a kind of perspective on some of the scary stuff that was going on back then. It's uh, it's really worth seeing. Just to get a, a bigger perspective of of this area, I know that uh, to the south there's another dry lake bed. There's a uh, people have always asked me, and they've posted um, photographs of this online, and asked me. There's a uh, it's a single runway that points to the to the northeast. Do you know is that is that part of the facility uh, area 51 test site or is that something different? Well, that's an interesting place. That's the uh, the Yucca Flat airstrip in uh, area six, and originally there was just a dirt airstrip on the dry lake bed itself, which is Yucca Lake, and that was that was scraped out specifically to support the atomic testing program but it's been used since then for other things including testing of unmanned aerial vehicles and then uh, around early 2000s an unspecified customer <laughs> built this new airstrip off the off the edge of yucca lake and of course uh, if you ask anyone you know so what are you guys doing there they won't talk about it but some of the documents that were released or unclassified uh, explained that you know it was supporting unmanned aerial vehicle testing. You know, it was basically a, a 5,000 foot strip and a few hangars. And on Google Earth, you can sometimes see uh, light airplanes or even drones, uh, such as the MQ-9 Reaper, on the ramp right there at Yucca Lake Airfield. I think one of the things that have, has uh, garnered a bit of uh, conversation about it is the fact that there's a big hangar right there in the middle. It has some clamshell doors, and the front of it is round. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you can imagine. So I had no idea what that was, and, and people have asked me. And one of the things, too, is the fact that it looks like it has a wall around it of a significant width and height. Have you ever been down there to see that? Uh, I, I have not seen since they built that up more. It's, it, has, it has been improved considerably over uh, recent years. Now, I know that you know, early on, uh, around 2005, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works used that area to test their Polecat unmanned aerial vehicle, which was a one-of-a-kind demonstrator. Although, interestingly, they flew that off the dry lake bed airstrip. But... I would not be at all surprised if they've been testing all kinds of new advanced unmanned vehicles out of there. And, you know, we probably won't get to see what those look like or hear about them for quite a few years. 
So just directly south of that, there it looks like uh, another dry lake bed in what may have been a base or some kind uh, called a Frenchman Lake. What's what's Frenchman Lake and what's Sugar Bunker? Yeah, well, Fr- Frenchman is uh, is the lake bed where a lot of the above ground testing was done, and that's where they built all those um, different kinds of bomb shelters, a, a partial train trestle, bank vault and various other test structures to see what would happen to them. So that was uh, where a lot of above-ground tests took place. And it's also currently where they have the spill test facility, and not far from there is a low-level radioactive waste dump, you know, one of a couple of them at the test site. There was quite a bit of uh, stuff done there and some of the troop maneuvers and things, and also the atomic cannon that was fired uh, the one time there as well. So the whole area extending across East Area 51, you know, maybe at uh, 20, 20 by 20, 25 miles. At any given time, to me, it looks like there's so much activity that there's a structure in the infrastructure for um, housing people, um, town, uh, stores, anything like that. Well, you know, there, there used to be a considerable population at Mercury, which is at the southern end of the, the site. And there was housing there for the workers at the test site. And directly adjacent to that also was Camp Desert Rock, which was a tent camp that supported the military deployments. Uh, I don't know how populated that whole thing is anymore. The test site population has dropped considerably since those days. And a lot of people probably just commute from Las Vegas or other nearby communities. Yeah, it seems that uh, I know Mercury actually has, um, I think, a school and a post office. So there's a population there. I can't imagine living so close to a test site like that. But, uh, you know, that's the Nevada desert. Right. And on my visits to the site, uh, we used to stop regularly at the cafeteria in Mercury, where the food was really cheap because it was subsidized through the government. And they had a little... uh, little store right there, you know, for if you needed magazines or gum or things like that. Hmm. For a while, there was a a microwave oven, and you could buy stuff to microwave in there that they called nukables. Peter Merlin has been my guest. Peter, please let everybody know where they can find you and your books online, please. Well, um, it's easy to Google my name or... You know, look on, on Amazon for my books or even the local bookstore. You know, Barnes & Noble carries some of my stuff. I've written two books for the uh, Images of America series uh, for uh, Arcadia Publishing. One is Nevada Test Site, and the other is Area 51. And in fact, they're both standalone volumes, but I sort of designed them as companion volumes because they, they certainly have some overlapping history involved there. Lots of really neat pictures, uh, some of which a lot of people probably haven't seen before. I've written books on uh, searching for downed experimental planes, uh, X-plane crashes from Specialty Press is one of these, as well as a great many books from uh, for NASA, which you can find as free downloads on the NASA website. Peter, I'd love to have you on another show because I know you have a wealth of knowledge and um my next book that I'm going to read that you've done is the Area 51 book. I can't wait to get into that. I've been privileged to have you on my show tonight. And again, I want to thank you so, so much. And um, good luck to you, sir. And and going to keep an eye out for you, all, as always. And 
And uh, thank you for being here. All right. Well, thank you very much. My Alien Life Podcast. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records.